0: My name is Marco, I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and worshiping alongside of us. Uh, Man, I'm really excited to be preaching this morning. So if you have a a Bible, whether it's a hard copy or a fake one on your phone, uh, you can uh, load it to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at three verses today, verses 13 through 16. And uh, I'm just going to kind of give you a a quick preface. Uh, These are some dense verses, and uh, it's not mine, it's the Apostle Paul's. And, but we're gonna walk through each one as, as best as possible in addition to that if you don't have a Bible if you're new or, or maybe you even forgot yours we do have Bibles available for you take one please that is our gift to you if you know someone who would benefit from having a Bible take a few hook them up uh, and uh, and I think I think that's all I really have for us again thank you so much for For being here with us, for joining us and worshiping alongside us. Uh, I am excited to be preaching. That scared me. I'm excited to be preaching on Ephesians 4. Here we go. When Storehouse was first planted, uh, one of the great convictions that the Lord pressed on me was that of community and discipleship. And I can kind of pause in that sentence, and many of you would be like, oh man, he's. He's going to be talking about community and and being in each other's lives and talking about each other's stuff. And yes, right? But nevertheless, this was one of the convictions that the Lord really pressed upon me, that of community and discipleship. And to be honest, at first it was intimidating because by nature, I'm an introvert. Like I got to pump myself up. I got to psych myself out to, to be in large groups of people, to be in large crowds, um some of you know that uh sometimes I even have to like hurry away and kind of like catch my breath maybe pray a little bit and then come back out and I'm all in but by nature I'm a, I am an introvert and so it was a little bit intimidating it was a little bit of a challenge and sometimes it still can be but uh, the way I'm wired is, is that, that I love process, and I love systems, and I love to see things essentially come together in an effort to accomplish one goal. That's, that's actually the definition of, of organic, right? Some of you love to use that word uh, sometimes flippantly, and essentially what that means is a system coming together to achieve one thing. Ha <laughs> ha, got you. Anyway. With that, uh, I I do love seeing things come together to achieve one goal. And so as I began to study scripture, uh, specifically in the context of spiritual maturity, uh, one of the things I began to learn was that spiritual maturity is often accompanied by community. And the goal is not only to be as a body presented as mature, uh, but to ultimately point back to a redeeming savior. Here at Storehouse, We value community and discipleship, not only because that's what the early church did or that's how the early church got started, but because we believe that that is what the church is meant to do. Life on life, meaningful relationships, friendships, and sanctification. The Christian life, both practically and systematically, is not designed for individuals to be lone islands. It's not meant to be lived that way or to be walked in that manner. And so this morning, I want us to examine the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 4 uh, as we see that the purpose to be a community is uh, is for us to grow in discipleship, for us to grow in maturity, and, and how that actually is accomplished is in community. And so as we walk through Ephesians 4, I want to answer four questions And so the first one is, and you don't have to write these down, these are on the notes, or if you don't have the notes, I guess you would write them down, but we're going to walk through them as we move forward today. The first one is going to be, well, what happens? What exactly happens in community? If we embrace the teachings of scripture, if we embrace the teachings of something like Acts 2 or Ephesians 4, where we find ourselves this morning, what exactly happens in community? That's question number one. Question number two is, well, then how do we disciple one another? we're going to see upon the first question that what happens is discipleship. And then from that, we're going to come out with three questions. And that is, how do we disciple one another? What does discipleship guard us from? And finally, what are the results of discipleship? And so at this time, I'd like to read Ephesians 4, and then we'll get into the remainder of our time. So once again, if you're just joining us, We are in Ephesians 4, verses 13 to 16. And so this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Until we all attain to the unity of faith, For from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me pray for our time, and then we'll dive into the Scripture. God, as we come together to worship you, number one, we just want to thank you for a beautiful morning. Uh, I'm reminded uh, of really two places in Scripture where you say that your mercies are are new every morning, and it is the kindness of your heart that leads us to repentance. And today, it seems and looks and it appears that your voice is so sweet. So may it remind us of your mercy and may it draw us to repentance. God, as we pursue worship of you in our time this morning, I pray that those who know Jesus would come to know him better. I pray that those who don't know Jesus uh, would come to know Jesus That they would see that uh, not only is Jesus perfect and the sinless Savior, uh, but He works in and through the imperfect bride, that is the church. And so, God, ultimately, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would be sanctified. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be present among us, not simply, uh, not just at work, but also present. You are. I simply ask that you would continue to transform us into the image of Christ. God, would you set me aside and will you be glorified this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through these questions. Uh, I'm going to try not to go too fast. I've only had three cups of coffee today. And so we'll see how this goes. So the first question is, well, what happens in community? If we're going to unpack Ephesians 4, these three verses in Ephesians 4, we need to first answer, well, what happens in community? And so I'll give you a lot of things. Actually, let me back up. There are a multitude of things that happen in community. However, the one thing that we are going to focus on this morning is discipleship. And so we need to define discipleship. And here at Storehouse, we define discipleship as meeting people where they are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Now, the key word in that statement or in that definition is the word taking them. You could also substitute it for walking with them. And that should give you a little bit of clarity as to what discipleship is or what discipleship consists of. In other words, discipleship in and of itself is a process. It is something that takes time. As you walk with someone and or others, it is going to be a great deal of time and investment in that relationship. Additionally, it's going to require patience because the definition says meeting people where they are, not meeting them where you'd like them to be. So it forces us to pursue humility. It forces us to lower ourselves to meet people where they are and take them where Jesus wants them to be. In addition to that, everyone gets discipled. Everyone. Everyone gets discipled. The question is, who's discipling you? Is it it Christ or is it the culture? Make no mistake, everyone gets discipled speaking specifically to believers, every believer is to disciple others. And we see this best demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus as he discipled 12 other men. Now, when we look at the content of the gospels, when we look at the content, what do we see? We see both formal conversations and informal conversations. We see Jesus walking with them. We see Jesus hanging out with them. We see Jesus taking them where he wants them to be. And it's over the course of three years. And a lot of things happen over the course of those three years, but primarily it is a process. It in and of itself is a process. Additionally, discipleship happens in the context of relationships, which is where we're headed to this morning, but it happens in the context of relationships. And so a couple of things that come out from that is that discipleship isn't necessarily something special. It's not necessarily, or it isn't something that only like special forces Christians do, and it isn't something that just church leadership has pinned down. Discipleship, when we look at the content of scripture, is pretty ordinary, discipleship is very ordinary it is meeting people where they are and as you're already going as you're already doing life as you're already knocking things out you bring them along you walk with them you take them to where Jesus wants them to be so discipleship is very very ordinary discipleship is incredibly relational Whether you meet at Starbucks at 5 p.m. on Tuesdays or as you're cooking dinner and you invite people into your home, discipleship is always relational. Those of you who are parents understand this, or at least we should. Discipleship, if we want to look at it this way, class is always in session. One of the best pictures I have is uh, I went to one of the guy's houses Uh, I think two weeks ago, Uh, and it was mid-morning, and it was him and his daughter, and they were cooking breakfast. And so I walk, I say hi, I go in, and he has her on a a little step stool, and she's like uh, whisking the eggs, and he's getting things ready, and he is teaching his daughter how to make breakfast, and so they're doing things together. That's discipleship. He was already going to cook breakfast. He just brings her alongside of him. That's discipleship. It's ordinary, like we could look at that picture and be like, yeah, parents are meant to do that, or parents are supposed to do that. That is very ordinary. It is also relational. Discipleship can also be very transformative. See, because as we begin to invest in one another, particularly with, with the knowledge of, of the person and work of Christ, you begin to see transformation, that we are sanctifying one another, that we are preaching the gospel to one another, that we begin to help one another mature. Again, discipleship is ordinary, it's relational, and it's transformative. As we look at discipleship this morning, we're going to look at it specifically in the context of Christian community. And this matters in light of where we're headed next week. We'll talk about that next week. But here's the main idea. Every week I try to hook you up with the main idea. Here's the main idea. Discipleship in community breeds maturity. Discipleship in community breeds maturity. So that answers the first question. Well, what happens in community? Discipleship. But what's discipleship? Meeting people where they are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Well, how does that happen? In ordinary, relational, everyday life. So let's move on to the next question. This is where we begin to dive into Ephesians 4. The next question is, well, then how do we disciple one another? In community, if what we are doing is discipleship, or we're discipling one another, how do we then do it? Well, the Apostle Paul hooks us up with several things. The first thing that Paul says is that we strive for unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Therefore, what is at stake when we are with one another is the gospel. That is what the priority is, the gospel. Unity is actually the result of transformation and not conformity. It's a Romans 12 moment, do not be conformed to the world, by be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Unity is actually the result of transformation. And transformation, while glorious and wonderful, isn't always comfortable. And it happens in relationships. Nobody, none of us want to say like, that's great. Yeah, it's great when, when you're by yourself, right? But it's hard Nevertheless, Christ is our source of growth, and he works through the church. So the church is the conduit of that growth. So as a church, our goal is to fight for unity. That's how we begin to disciple one another in community, by fighting for unity. Number two is faith in Jesus. Paul goes on to say, until we attain the unity of the faith of the Son of God. That's a theological statement. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is the priority. We fight for unity on the foundation upon which we stand. And that is the gospel. That God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, lived in our stead, died in our place, paying our penalty and forgiving us of our sins. And it doesn't end there. Not only does he take upon your and my sin, he then gives us freely his righteousness. He pays our debt with his credit. That is where we stand. That is how we fight for unity. First, in the faith of the Son of God, in Christ. And that is very, very specific. That's what Paul's getting at. He continues. He continues. Uh, Until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. If faith in Christ is theological, then knowledge in Christ is practical. This is how you and I grow in knowledge of Jesus is in the context of relationship. This is the everyday, ordinary discipleship. When we're together, challenging one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, this is the practical outworking of what we believe. The gospel informs how we live and love one another. When Paul says attaining unity for the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, many want to put that together, but it's actually two different things. One is theological hey, this is the ground upon which we stand. The other one is practical this is what it's going to look like in our lives. And he continues. to mature manhood. We'll talk about that later. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. He continues, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The fourth way that we disciple one another is by speaking the truth in love. So let me recap that real quick. The question is, how do we disciple one another? According to Ephesians 4, it's by striving or fighting for unity. It is by standing upon the faith that is in Jesus Christ alone. It is by growing up in our knowledge as we are with together in Christ. And it is by speaking the truth in love. And I want to park here for a minute. What we're seeing in Ephesians 4 is the context of relationship. In other words, we are with one another. And so Paul says, speak the truth in love. He doesn't say text. He doesn't say email. And some of you might even push back and say, yeah, well, they didn't have text or email then. But Paul didn't, he also did not say write to one another in love. He said speak to one another in love. And so the context here is relationship. And so when Paul says that we are to speak to one another, uh, what we say and how we say it matters. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but know that right off the bat. What we say and how we say it matters. Paul continues. So speak, The truth, park there for just a quick second, right? He says the truth. Not a truth, not your truth, but the truth. And the truth is what is grounded and centered upon biblical theology. Like in other words, you're not just hooking one another up with good advice, you are preaching good news to one another. The psalmist says that the law of the Lord is perfect and that it revives the soul. Elsewhere, he says that it is the Word of God or the law of God that brings uh, life to dead bones. And we hammer that a lot because sometimes I think we really just want to talk about what we want to talk about and ignore biblical centricity. When it comes to speaking the truth some of you really love knowing a lot, and I love that. That's great. That means you read, you're, you're a student. That's awesome. But if your desire is only to grow in knowledge without relationship, then, then you're really just arrogant. Or on the other hand, if you really just want a ton of relationships, but you don't necessarily want to touch on the truth, then you too are also arrogant. Arrogant. And so here, what Paul says is, hey, speak the truth to one another. The truth that is centered upon what God has revealed in his word. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be practical. That doesn't mean that you wanna, you're want you not going to encourage one another or exhort one another. It's that the motivation, it's that where you're coming from is from Scripture. It's from Scripture. And so Paul says, speak the truth in Love. Love is more than an emotion. Love is certainly an action. Love can only be demonstrated by the saints, the church. That's a a weighty statement, right? 1 John, however, tells us that it's not that we loved, but it's that Christ loved us first, that God loved us first, that he sent his son to die on a cross for sinners, that God demonstrated love so that we would understand love previous to that our understanding of love or the concept of love has been shaped by culture maybe even family film and media yet what god is saying through john is that hey you want to understand love it is through what god has done for you in christ the saints the church are the ones who can demonstrate love Truth without love, Paul says, is just noise. It's just noise. In 1 Corinthians, 13, Paul is talking a great deal about love. And one of the things that Paul says is, man, if I have all of the faith in the world, but I don't have love, I miss it. If I have these gifts and I have these capabilities, but I perform them without love, then I am nothing but a noisy gong. I'm a distraction. I'm just full of noise. And the concern here is that many Christians will read this verse, but they will not necessarily include love or love is a transaction, even though it has been demonstrated to them through Christ dying for them. So it's not foreign. You just don't want to do it. Truth with no love is nothing but noise. Uh, this is what Tim Keller writes. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In the church, sometimes we cultivate this uh culture, we cultivate this culture that is often like, man, we're gonna call one another out and we're gonna put things on the table and I think that's great, that's wonderful. We ought to do it, but most of the time, or sometimes, I don't wanna speak in absolutes, but many times when we do that, the motivation isn't necessarily to be gracious and the speech isn't necessarily seasoned with salt and the motivation isn't so that we would mature one another, disciple one another, or be sanctified in Christ. The whole thing, the reason behind it is just to make you feel like crap. I don't have another word to say. I mean, that's the best thing I got, right? Like you've been there when someone tells you truth and you're like, I mean, I agree, but you just walk away beat up and discouraged and like, okay. But then on the other end, right? No one actually speaks truth to you. So there's actually no transformation. Paul is saying that we must engage one if we're going to disciple one another then we must engage one another by speaking the truth in love. If not to make it more intense, this is what John says in uh, this is 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. This is what he says. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In community, the reason we disciple one another is because the goal is to grow in maturity. The goal is to grow in our sanctification and ultimately glorify God because it is for our good. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But as we speak the truth in love, and we comprehend love, it ought to convict you and I, because when we dissect love and we look at some cross references, sometimes I think we make excuses like I really just want to speak the truth, or uh, and that's 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 like Christianese for like I'm gonna respond however I want, right? Because that's just who I am, and that's terrible. Um, and <laughs> And in addition to that, right, sometimes you don't want to share the truth at all. Now, with that being said, I want to go on and on and on. But here, with that being said, both sets, the individual who loves with no truth, the one who speaks truth without love, both are afraid of something. So the question I would have for you is, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you're afraid of? I'll be honest, when it comes to this, I'm like, oh man, sometimes I don't want to speak the truth because I fear loss or I feel rejection, right? The same thing might be for you. What is it that you're afraid of? And it could be the same reason, like, man, I share truth, but with no love. Well, what is it that you're afraid of? You're afraid of being vulnerable and letting people kind of draw near to you so that you would grow up and be like, what is it that you're afraid of? And it might be the same thing. It might be rejection. It just manifests itself differently. What is it that you're afraid of? So that answers the question, well, how do we disciple one another? Unity, faith in Christ, knowledge in Christ, and speaking the truth in love. Paul then continues, and we answer a third question. Well, then, what does discipleship guard us from? If we begin to work in these facets of unity and faith and knowledge and speaking the truth in love, what does discipleship then guard us from? I got four things, right? If you are new, I love subpoints. Anyway, uh, what happens here is uh, how we are guarded. Is, number one is immaturity. Discipleship, when done correctly, guards us from immaturity. So Paul says so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. My granddaughter's name is Delilah, and her nickname is Chappies. So I call her Chappies. The name comes from uh, the word chapulin, which means grasshopper, right? The reason I've called her that, or I've named her that, is because Chapius likes to look at something and she's all about it and then five minutes later she bounces to the next thing and then she's persuaded by that next thing and really really loves it and then bounces and goes look at something else children are easily persuaded and like this is great and then they go to the next thing right that's what paul is saying here as we disciple one another What's going to happen is that we're going to guard one another from immaturity, jumping to and from different kinds of teachings and doctrines, and actually beginning to stand upon conviction. Some of you like being a grasshopper. This is really great. Then I'm going to jump over here. This is really great. Then I'm going to jump over here. This is really great. But you lack conviction and a foundation. Sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes it could lead back up to, man, are you in community with someone? Are you being discipled by someone? And oftentimes when, that, when there's a lot of jumping around, it's like, no. Okay, well, we need to get you in there. So that you would guard yourself from immaturity and, and poor doctrine. So that you would develop convictions. And so that you wouldn't lean towards false teaching. because That's what ends up happening the person who is tossed to and fro by the wind is someone who is unstable. They lack conviction. So that's the first thing that it guards us from. The next thing that it guards us from is human cunning. And so the context here that Paul is saying is in a a game of dice, uh, particularly as he's talking to the Ephesians, he is saying uh, someone who is cunning is someone who sets the game up Uh, in a way that benefits them. In other words, they are skilled in the art of deception. Like, they want to deceive you. They are really good at deceiving. And so Paul says, as we disciple one another in community, we are going to guard one another from deceit. Why? Because we can speak the truth to one another in love in order to grow in maturity and being sanctified and all those great things. So human cunning. The next one is craftiness. The word craftiness comes from someone who is an imposter. In other words, someone who is pretending to be someone that they are not. Right? The, the best example I have, and I'm pretty sure it's kind of self-explanatory, but the best example that I have comes from the show Parks and Rec. Some of you may or may not have seen it. Right? And there's this character played by Nick Offerman. His name is Ron Swanson, and he loves his privacy. He doesn't want anybody to know where he's at and all this stuff. And one of the guys from the court that serves you documents comes in and he says, hi, I'm looking for Ron Swanson. Ron says, oh, I'm sorry. He just stepped out. Uh, Can I take a message? So the guy from the court goes on to say, oh, I'm just here to let him know that he won a steak dinner to such and such steakhouse. Well, at that point, Ron says, yes, I'm Ron Swanson. That, that's me. And he says, here you go. You've been served, right? And so, and so the guy from the court was an imposter, right? He was pretending to be someone he wasn't. He was pretending to be someone from the restaurant. And what he was doing was waiting for Ron to confirm his identity. The word craftiness comes out of that. It is an individual, or an imposter who is pretending to be someone that they are not, and they are waiting to trap. That's what the guy from the court did. He waited, Ron confirmed, and then he trapped him. When we disciple one another properly in community, we guard one another from immaturity, we guard one another from human cunning or deceit, and we guard one another from craftiness, that is, that we can see traps laid out. And we disciple one another by pulling one another back by saying, "Don't go that route," and this is why. And then the fourth one isn't necessarily here, but it's one I'd like to briefly address: is when we disciple one another, one of the other things, one of the last things that we uh, guard ourselves from is consumerism. All right. I mean, what does a consumer do? A consumer takes and exhausts. That's really it. When we disciple one another, we are investing into one another for a goal. And the goal is for us to grow in maturity, to be presented in the fullness of Christ. That's what Paul says. An individual who is a consumer loves to take and loves to exhaust people and resources. It's the individual who shows up and what can I get from this? And then they bounce. And then the next week they show up and what can I get from this? And then they bounce. That's a consumer. So when we disciple one another well, when we disciple one another properly, those are the four things that we guard ourselves from, or that we guard one another from. Immaturity, deceit, craftiness, and consumerism. And So we land on the final question. Well then, what is the result of discipleship? Paul tells us that too. The first one is maturity. That is the result, that is one of the results of discipleship. Paul says, until we attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. He's talking to everybody, he's talking to the church. Maturity is one of the results of discipleship. That rather than being divisive, we are actually kingdom-minded. He goes on to say in that same verse, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of, of Christ. Maturity equates to being more like Jesus. Remember like I told you last week, not a better version of yourself, but being transformed further into the image of Christ. So maturity is number one. The second thing is that Paul tells us, and this is toward the end, he says that the, that the body is edified. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together, we're going to talk about that in a bit, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we disciple one another in community and we do it correctly and we do it well, the body of Christ is built up. That is that we are encouraged by love, we are empowered by the gospel, and the body, the church, is working as it should anything contrary to that is arrogance the idea of edification that the body would be built up isn't only for our good but it's so that those who don't know jesus are looking at the church so that god in christ would reveal himself through the church in the previous chapter of ephesians that's what paul says Paul says that God has chosen to reveal himself in Christ through the church. So, if the church is growing in maturity, if the tr- church is growing and edifying one another, that is not only transformative for you and I, that is reflecting transformation, that is reflecting grace and mercy to people who do not know Jesus. It is edifying. And then finally, the result of discipleship is that, uh, the the result of discipleship is reconciliation. In that same section, Paul says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped. The word reconciliation is an SAT word relationship and restoration right if we look at the work of christ what he does is that he through his work on the cross reconciles us to the father in other words he restores us back into a relationship with the father now it doesn't end there with the church not only are you and I reconciled to the Father, but we are reconciled or we are to be reconciled with one another. Like that is part of fighting for unity and that is part of being held together reconciliation is what brings us together, how we love one another. Now, I get it. This is the part where it's like, yeah, I get it. Reconciliation is really good on paper. It is. It's fantastic on paper. It's wonderful news. And it is also an action that comes out of who we are in Christ. That means that we are pursuing reconciliation, Not only are we preaching the gospel to those who don't know Jesus so that they would be reconciled to the Father, but we are also pursuing reconciliation with one another because the goal is to mature one another, to grow up in love with one another so that we would know Jesus better, so that we would be more like Jesus. And reconciliation is tough. Because as soon as we start talking about reconciliation, if we're honest, maybe one or two people start popping in our head and the last thing that we want to do is pursue a conversation. Because it's going to be tricky and muddy and I get that. And and I I promise, I do. However, earlier in this text, Paul says that we stand upon the uh, the foundation that is faith in Christ Jesus. I think, or I believe, one of, the, one of the things we don't do well as a church, as Christians, right, is that when it comes to those conversations, we don't want to take the gospel into it. We want to take the truth. We want to take a defensive position. We want to have our points laid out. We want to do all these other things. And sometimes maybe that's necessary. I don't know. But the last thing that you and I tend to think about is the gospel. The place where we should take it Is the place we don't want to. You could see this, or it can uh, manifest itself in relationships like marriages. She needs to be fixed, he needs to listen. But the last thing that is brought in is the gospel. And yeah, there's these practical things that should and probably do need to be worked on, but there's no foundation that we're standing on. The same thing in relationships in the church. They need to do, they need to be, they need to try, they need to whatever. And there is no foundation that you stand upon. And so we've wasted our time, but there is grace. There is a beauty of grace. You see, what ushers us into the kingdom, what ushers us into reconciliation with the Father is the gospel. And so it is the gospel that ought to usher us into reconciliation with one another. It's the same thing, it's the same thing. The results of discipleship are that we grow in maturity, is that we are edified, and that we are reconciled. We value discipleship in community because it breeds maturity. So here's where I'll close. If you know Jesus in light of what we just finished walking through, if you know Jesus, let me invite you as your friend, as your pastor, as your brother, to repent of any arrogance or self-righteousness that you may and probably are holding on to. I promise you it spills over. I promise you. And when it does, you hinder your growth or as it spills over, you hinder your sanctification. And if we as the church hold fast to arrogance and self-righteousness, we hinder our maturity. We hinder the reflection of grace and mercy. So if you're holding on to arrogance or self-righteousness, repent. Repent if you have been a lone island. Kind of walking on your own, doing your own thing. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And don't get too theological because we can get into the practical. Like, well, you know, I have the Trinity. You do. And the church is to be a part of that. You, you don't get to have God without the church. It, isn't, it doesn't work that way. So, repent of being a lone island. Repent of if today you have chosen to harden your heart toward other saints. If you have hardened your heart toward other saints, repent. Repent of that. We hinder our growth. We hinder our growth. We hinder from being joined and held together. We hinder ourselves from being properly equipped. We hinder ourselves from being edified so that Christ would be made known. We hinder ourselves. So repent. If you find yourself there, man, repent. And if you don't know Jesus, number one, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Seriously, thank you for being here this morning. Walking through this, here's what I would say. Look at the church. Be Like, yeah, I don't always see that. Yeah, that's not good. But you know who is good? Jesus Christ. He is good. And he loves the imperfect faithlessness of the bride. He pursues the bride as she is still sinning against him. He pursues her. And He invites you to come to know Him. And upon coming to know Him, you receive a new heart and your mind is renewed and you have new desires. And yes, the church, the bride, is imperfect. And sometimes, a lot of times, every day, she lacks faithfulness. And yet, God is faithful in pursuing her. In fact, one day, He will come again to reclaim His bride, the church. So He invites you to come to know Him. We're relational not because it's cool. I mean, it kind of is. But we're relational because our God is a relational God. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. And He calls us to be in community with one another for His glory and our good. Let's pray. God, when we talk about community, uh, one of the great realities is that your work through Jesus adopts us into your family, which makes us family, each one of us. And with that being said, in a family, sometimes uh, there is tension, sometimes there are chores. Sometimes there are really good times. Sometimes there are really challenging times. And it's not always because of other people. Sometimes the reality is it's because of us. And so God, as you challenge us to be in community with one another for the purpose of growing in maturity, edifying one another, and being reconciled to one another, may our eyes be fixed on Jesus as we do it. May we pray for courage and strength. May we repent of our sin and place our trust in You. May we do all of those things, not just so that we can say we've done it, but so that we would grow up into the fullness of Christ. That we would do it so that we would be more like Jesus. That we would do it so that we would reflect Your glory to those who don't know You. And that at the same time, we would be transformed. That we would not be conformed, but transformed. That we would be able to discern what is pleasing, what is good, and what is right to you. That our hearts, that we would align the will of our hearts with your will, and in doing so, have our will. God, may we repent of, or better yet, would You forgive us of excuses? Would You forgive us of our pride? Would You forgive us of our self-righteousness? Would You forgive us of our arrogance? Would You forgive us of our bitterness and hardened hearts? The message of, of your Gospel is that Jesus entered into human history to love the unlovable. That's us. To love the ungodly. That's us and while we were still sinning, died for us. And so as a result of of having Christ in us, may we love those who are sometimes hard to love. May we love those who we don't want to, but may we do it and usher the gospel into it. God, as we transition our time of worship into uh, tithes and offering. May this be a, a time of not only continued worship, but this is where we give you our stuff. This is, this is worship by relinquishing what we think is ours and what we own. And may we give uh, to you and your church faithfully and cheerfully. May we give to you sacrificially because the standard of generosity is demonstrated on the cross through Jesus. So Lord, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.